if you're subsisting on social security, you need to have three to six months of your income in your savings, at least that much, because sometimes weird stuff happens. I've heard this so many times in my career. Well, now that I'm on social security, I don't need to have as much in savings because I'm for sure going to get paid. And the answer to that is there's never surety, ever. Having reserves is a minimum. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure today. Jeff McClure is still off gallivanting, which is a good word that people don't use as much as they should. It, it, fantastic. Why did we get rid of that one? And, uh, and there's a lot of words I think we should bring back, but that's one. We, we deem that word to be a good word. Okay. So what is this program? This program is the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, we're, I'm here to talk to you about the economy in general, banking, investments. I'm also here to talk about personal finance. But before we do that, before I get started on any of that, I have a bunch of disclosures because what purpose would me talking to you be if I didn't tell you everything I was going to say was in some way unbelievable in advance in a very high-pitched or quickly spoken monotone? Um, it, it would just it would ruin the whole program if we didn't tell you, number one, I'm bald and I'm bearded. I like puns. I like jokes. The name of this program, The Personal Wealth Coach, is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. It's not a coincidence. One of the principles of that firm is who is talking to you today. We named the firm after we named the radio program. How's that for you? Been doing the radio program a long time. And the firm's been around for a ways, but not as long as a radio program. Uh, again, not coincidental. The firm is an SEC-registered investment advisory firm doing fiduciary duties for our clients to say things that are in their best interest and advice. We do portfolio management and that sort of thing. However, having said that, I can't give investment advice on the air. I'm not going to tell you to buy or to sell anything today because... Uh, that would maybe be inappropriate. I don't know everybody that's listening. Well, maybe I do. Maybe there's three of you out there and I know you all. Or maybe there's nobody listening and it's only me. But even so, it's not private because somebody could be listening. So it can't give fiduciary advice on the air. So what are we doing? Education. We are. I, I am working hard to educate you on the history of finance and what does it mean when things happen why do interest rates have to be so uninteresting even when they're causing bank failures? I'm hopefully going to make them a little bit interesting. So it's education. And having said that the firm is SEC registered, that doesn't mean that the SEC thinks that our firm does anything special. Uh, it's just the regulators. And we're required by them to tell you that the firm is registered with them. So that if, if I say something that could damage you financially or something that's a blatant lie, they're the people to talk to. Generally speaking, when you're listening to a radio program and you hear them say something that's completely incorrect, uh, you don't really have any recourse. 
uh, we're we're kind of regulated. Freedom of speech is a little bit regulated when it comes to the financial services world. Okay, so what else do I have to tell you? Well, the information that I'm going to discuss with you come from sources that I deem to be reliable, but we're not guaranteeing it. We're not warranting it or any other name in the thesaurus about uh, giving some kind of word bond guarantee, warranty, or any other. I should get the thesaurus out next time and go through the entire listing uh, to say that we're not doing that on the information. We do deem it to be reliable, getting places from like treasury.gov and the Federal Reserve's direct sources, but that doesn't say that it is. And the last thing is we don't pay for this radio program. This is not a paid commercial program. This truly is an educational program. And the fact that we do it for a living off the air is kind of nice. We do get some benefit from people hearing us on the air. Uh, that's not why we're doing it. I, I mean, it helps. It's nice. It's a nice little benefit. But we don't get a whole lot of people coming to us saying, we have $8 million and I heard your episode one time and I want to invest with you. That's not how people make investment decisions. We also don't, well, we don't pay for the program. We're also not paid to do the program. We do pay money to KTM, Town Square, for advertisement for the radio program at normal market rates. And they do at least an equal amount. They don't pay normal market rates. For some reason, they discount themselves and they don't require themselves to pay themselves. I don't know why. They should be Congress. But then we'd never be able to pay for Social Security. Yeah, that's an inside joke if you understand bureaucracy. Okay, so those are all the disclosures, or at least all the ones that I can fit into the disclosure portion. We'll be giving you disclosures about everything. So I've got some A question, uh, or three, uh, hanging out there for me. I've got a question on... Uh, the debt ceiling, and I have a question on shadow banks. Uh, so Linda sent hers in in the middle of the week. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about her question. We sent out a, a newsletter a couple of weeks ago where we talked about the biggest risk that we see to the health of the economy, and it is by far the biggest risk. It is not even chartable on the same scale as all the other risks, including banking issues, because this is something that could lead to those. And that is the debt ceiling not being raised and the United States failing to pay its obligations. Well, what does that mean? It's otherwise known as defaulting on your debt or bankruptcy when you cannot pay your debts. And why is that? The, her question is, um, we, she quotes it, failure of the U.S. to pay its legal obligations would create a bona fide disaster. Uh, and she says, how would one go about protecting oneself? Would one need to have a certain amount of cash on hand and all bills paid up? Would banks be likely to shut down temporarily until solution partly worked out? What's the best guess? Thank you for that last part about best guess, because we've never done it before. We have never defaulted on our debt. The Constitution says we won't, but that doesn't mean we won't. It's just a piece of paper that says we won't. If Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, then we don't pay our debts. We're already at the debt ceiling. What does this even mean? For those of you that are wondering, the debt ceiling has nothing to do with a house structure, maybe the House of Representatives. Way back at the beginning of our country, when Congress passed a law that had to do with spending anything, whether that be improving the uh, mule-drawn canals or 
uh, funding a, the U.S. Army. They would pass two bills at the same time, generally in the same stack of papers, and they would vote once for both bills. One would be, this is what we want to spend on, and the second bill that's attached is, we're authorizing the U.S. Treasury to issue debt, to borrow money to pay for this if we don't have enough money on hand. And then early in the 20th century, Congress got lazy and said, we don't want to keep doing two bills every time. That's Think of all the ink we're wasting. So instead said, we're going to pass a separate law that says the U.S. Treasury can borrow up to a set limit to pay for the stuff that we're agreeing to pay for. That's Congress, because Congress is the one that agrees to pay for stuff or decides to pay for things that haven't even started yet. Okay, so now we're at a point where we've been borrowing a lot of money for the pandemic uh, stimulus, for uh, paying for all the things in the budget of the United States government. And I've said this before, I recommend that you look it up. If you take the retirement programs of the U.S. government, that includes Social Security and the federal employment uh, FERS, uh, and the rest of the federal employment positions, where the, like retirement pensions, and put them in one category. And then say Medicare, which is another kind of retirement expense. It is health insurance for retirees, those above the age of 65. And then you throw in defense. Those three programs alone not counting about interest on the debt, not counting about road work, FBI. You go down a long list of everything else the government does, not included in this list, just those three programs. That's 100% of the tax revenue. That's all the money we bring in in taxes gets, gets taken up by three programs. Now, that's not the way it actually works because those programs aren't all being paid out in April when the majority of taxes come in. It's spread out throughout the year, but that means anything else we do in the government has to be borrowed. Okay, well, we, could, we should cut back. Well, where would you like to cut back? We, if we cut back on defense? No, there's a war going on in Ukraine. The Russians are kind of scary right now. The Chinese are kind of scary right now. We don't want to lose our footing here. This would be a bad time to stumble. Let's keep that defense going. Well, we don't want to cut Social Security, though there's a new report that's just come out that says the trust fund for Social Security will be depleted uh, in 11 years, 2034. This is earlier than expected, and it has to do with the pandemic as much as anything else. A lot of extra people retired and haven't come back. We, we can talk about that more in, in follow-up. Okay, so we are at the debt limit now. The Congress of the United States hasn't raised it. We're still spending. We have till around July before we can't do it anymore. So what are we doing? Uh, what? How are we doing this? If we don't, if if we're at the debt ceiling, we can't borrow any more money. Where's the money coming from? This sounds a little worrisome, but they get money from, for instance, if we've already borrowed money. I'm just going to make up some random numbers here. Say 140 million dollars for the highway project that starts in July. And it's sitting in an account and they're getting bids from contractors and so on to do the work. Well, Congress reaches in there or the Treasury Department reaches into that $140 million and takes it out and puts an IOU in there instead and says, we'll have to pay that later. The, one of the big places they're getting money is the G fund in the thrift savings plan. So the thrift savings plan is the, the TSP 
most people know of it as the TSP. It's the federal retirement, sort of like a 401k. It's it's falls under the same um, tax consequences and benefits of a 401k. So what is the G fund? Well, the G fund is short-term U.S. treasuries. It's a very stable and 100% guaranteed position. If you've got the TSP, that is guaranteed by the government. Well, right now the government is taking the bonds that are in there, or it's actually bills and notes that are in there, and using those to pay expenses. What they're doing is they're taking those out and liquidating them, taking the cash and using it to pay for things as they go along. So some of the paychecks that the military is receiving right now are coming from their TSP. But the TSP balance hasn't changed because the Congress is replacing, or Treasury, is replacing those bills and notes with IOUs. Well, what are the bills and notes? Those are IOUs too. Okay, so that's a little weird. At some point, you run out of something that you can sell on the market because an interagency loan, that's when the TSP is loaning the G fund to the Congress. You can't sell an interagency loan to the market. It's an IOU from the government to the government. It's like the Social Security Trust Fund. You can't invest in that. You can't loan the government money on that. And what's more, the government can't borrow money outside of itself. It can't go to the market and ask for more money because we're at the debt ceiling. So what happens when we run out of money from these little accounts that the Treasury is grabbing the stuff from? Well, this happened in 2011. Paychecks stopped going out. If you recall this, uh, a lot of people didn't get paychecks in the military, in uh, the federal employment system, the SEC, the FBI. They didn't get paychecks. They skipped a paycheck. Now, when Congress finally came back and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to move forward and actually borrow some money, they got their money. But they did have to go a couple of days and, and in some cases longer than that to get their money. And there had to be all kinds of agreements with landlords to pay rent when the money came in. And if that extends to a longer period, Social Security checks don't come out. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, the, the employees of the government are not being paid. Work will stop on a lot of stuff. It's a full government shutdown situation. And if we ever get to the point where we're not paying the interest to the bond bill and note holders of the U.S. Treasury, then people are going to start charging more interest on those because it's not as safe and secure. Back in 2011, S&P and Moody's both lowered their credit rating on U.S. debt because we were talking about not paying it. That's not cool. What does that do? When we talk about the 10-year U.S. Treasury note as a benchmark, it's how we measure debt everywhere in all the stuff. So how does one prepare for this? What is the likelihood of happening? Uh, The way you prepare for it is the same way you prepare for any kind of a rough time. Have good savings. Make sure you pay your bills every month. Don't have uh, too much debt. Now, it's hard to do that if you're already in, in... (laughs) in those positions. You already not have savings and so on. But this is how you prepare yourself for any contingency like this, is you have enough money in the bank, even if you're on a fixed income, to cover a couple of months of, of your income. You must have that. You've got, if you're planning ahead, that is the number one thing to do. So would banks shut down? Some of them, possibly. 
the Federal Reserve System is not likely to be affected. But if banks aren't being paid interest on their uh, investments, I mean, this is sort of what led to the runs on the bank at Signature and First Republic and and SVB was their holdings of U.S. Treasuries. That's a dangerous thing. Now, the Federal Reserve can step in and buy a bunch of treasuries on the market, but at the point where we're at the debt ceiling, they can't buy directly from the treasury. They can't make a loan to the treasury. They're not part of the government. I know this is weird, and a lot of people think the Fed is the government. It isn't. It is a group of banks that was instituted by the government to regulate. It's it's a quasi-governmental organization. It's got its own budget. It doesn't come from the tax revenue. So it's a different thing. People need to understand that. A loan from the Federal Reserve to the government is still a loan. We can't do that if the debt ceiling doesn't go up. So that is a monster of a problem. And I just hope and pray it doesn't happen because it would be a complete failure of responsibility of the U.S. Congress. Now, there's just a couple of dozen people in the House of Representatives that are insisting on this. But without them, the Republicans can't pass the debt ceiling. They don't have enough votes. The Democrats can't push it forward because they don't have a majority. So the Republicans are not agreeing with the Democrats on raising the debt ceiling. Partisan politics, brinksmanship, when you're running toward the cliff edge and saying, I'll stop after you do, and I'm hoping that I stop before I go off the edge, it's dangerous. It's like playing chicken and expecting the other person to blink. Sometimes they do, and you may even have a great track record of making them blink first, but sometimes it doesn't work. So it's a, that's a big danger. The likelihood of it happening is in a big I don't know. If it does, it puts the likelihood of recession at close to 100%. Uh, we're already right kind of hanging in the cusp where it just takes a little bit to put us in a recession because interest rates are where they are. And that's an issue. So I'm usually a pretty optimistic, and I am long term about the United States economy, the innovation that we're doing now, the productivity that we're seeing the growth in new things and new ways of doing things is just phenomenal. Things are changing at a faster rate than they ever have. And that creates a glowing picture of optimism into the future. I'm seeing amazing things where the cost of living is going to continue to come down and the affordability of the crucial items is going to be easier and easier, like what we've seen over the past hundred years. But for right now, we've got some serious headwinds. We've got some things that we've got to deal with. The debt ceiling and social security is what do we do in, in 2034 when social security's trust fund is depleted? What does that mean? The law that's already on the books says that we'll only be able to use the money that we collect that year in payroll taxes to pay Social Security for that year. Right now what we're doing, this is a little bit strange, but I'll give you a little bit of history on this. When Social Security was instituted, there were 33-0 workers for every one retiree, which is a really good mix if you're taking a little bit out of the paycheck of each of the workers and giving something to that retiree. That's pretty cool, especially if the retiree themselves put money into Social Security their entire career. So that sounds really great, except that we're now slightly below two workers for every one retiree. We've got 
money coming out of paychecks to go into the social security system. And we've got for many years when we were collecting way more taxes on this than we were giving out as a pension and social security, we put it in the social security trust fund. These are interagency loans. Means a loan from the government to the government. They were spending the money as it came in on the general funds. It was an extra source of revenue. And they put an IOU in the Social Security Trust Fund. That's all bonds or bills are, is an IOU. I agree to pay this later. Some future Congress will pay this back. Well, we're paying it back now. The Congress is using some of the general tax revenue, not payroll taxes, to pay Social Security now. We're not collecting as much money in payroll taxes as is going out for Social Security or Medicare for that matter. But we have a trust fund sitting there where we put a bunch of IOUs. That trust fund gets depleted in 2034. That's the estimate that they put out this week. What happens then? Well, they cut the amount of Social Security that people are are getting paid down to the amount that's collected in a year. And that's about a two-third of the Social Security, you would have a one-third cut in pay in 2034. That's, a, that's still 11 years away. So people that are thinking, well, I don't have enough money in the bank today. It's 11 years out. And we, you can still plan for this. Having money on hand, hopefully Congress is going to plan for this. This is a really important aspect that we think should be a high priority, but it's not on either platform for the presidential election right now. Nobody's talking about it. That I find to be relatively serious. Okay, so those, and now I've talked about two really big, scary items. I have a question from Inquisitor John, our most faithful questioner, who I got to see face to face yesterday. It was very nice. He emailed a question that is about shadow banks. If I didn't scare you enough talking about the debt ceiling and social security, now we're talking about shadow banks. And as is tradition, Inquisitor John has a digital picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal with notes on it in pen. He sent it to me through the digital medium. So he got it through analog. I am now checking the same story on the digital version of the Wall Street Journal just to make sure that we can keep the old school systems in place. It'd be even better if he would fax us this stuff, but we don't really have ways of checking our fax machine in the middle of the program. Huh. Just the facts, sir. Just the facts. All right. Shadow banks. Of all the U.S. banks, what percent are shadow banks and are deposits FDIC insured? It's a good question. He's got an article from the Wall Street Journal headline, Risk Linger, Risks Linger in the Financial System. Uh, in the uh, digital version of the Wall Street Journal, the name of the article is Where Financial Risks Lie in 12 Charts. Okay. The section he has circled says shadow banks, banking issues are hard to quantify. Uh, yes. So what percent of uh, the U.S. banks are shadow banks? Don't know. That's an easy answer. Don't know. What percent of banks are shadow banks? Well, I guess that's an easier question. Zero. Zero percent of banks are shadow banks. Shadow banks are individuals or organizations that are acting like a bank in a lending capacity or in some kind of an interest-bearing deposit. So what's an example of that? Quicken Loans, that's a big one. Um, That's the biggest shadow bank probably. 
Why do I say probably when we have all these numbers available? Because shadow banks, Quicken Loans doesn't take deposits. They're getting the money that they have to make loans from investments and loans that aren't callable deposits like at a bank account. So they don't have FDIC on their deposits because they don't have deposits. They have people that are investing in them and in, in letting cash flow into their coffers that they can then turn around and loan out. Or they have big loans that they're getting from major brokerage firms to pay for loans that they are giving to someone else. So it's kind of doing a loan transaction that you would normally see at a bank. But what about owner financing? If you're trying to sell your house and the person that, or your business, this is even better, if you're trying to sell your business, say you have a trucking company and you have 12 trucks and you've got some cash on hand and you're retiring and you, you want to sell it. So somebody comes along and says, hey, nobody wants to give me a loan for this. I'm good for it. I've been running this other trucking business a long time and I've got good profits, but this is a big increase in what we're doing. We have six trucks and we're about to buy 12 more. Who's going to give them the loan? Well, they may not qualify for the loan. So as the owner of the business, you might owner finance and say, you pay me over a given period of time. Now you're a shadow bank. Shadow bank isn't a negative term. It sounds negative because it's like the black market. It just means it's kind of like a bank, but it isn't one. If you're making a owner loan, owner financing of the sale of your house or your car, you're a shadow bank. If you give your friend a loan for their rent this week, you're a shadow bank too. So this is why the, the, the sub headline is shadow banking issues are hard to quantify. Technically speaking, a money market mutual fund is a shadow bank because it's got deposits. Sometimes they're FDIC insured and then it's not a shadow bank. So if it's acting and and being regulated as a bank, then it's considered a bank. But if it's not regulated as a bank, it's a shadow bank if it's giving loans. Private equity is maybe the biggest area where shadow banking occurs. And I said Quicken Loans because they're the big, big shadow bank out there. But behind them, someone is giving them loans. Underneath it all, BlackRock is probably the largest shadow bank out there. They're making loans to Quicken Loans and to other institutions and private equity investments, which are making loans to other firms and so on. It's a big area and it's hard to track. If you're, it, here's another nice one. If you have deposits at PayPal, most of the time, or at Venmo, they have a section of their deposits that's at a bank. And you can look up what bank that is by asking them FDIC, Google PayPal and FDIC, and you'll see certain deposits are FDIC insured and certain aren't. You have to research this. When you're making a payment with PayPal or Venmo, it comes out of the bank and moves into the payment flow, and that portion's not insured. So it's absolutely a shadow bank, but it's also a kind of a bank. So it's not the bank, it's just using a bank. Crypto. Any kind of stable coin of any kind that's trying to match a dollar, that's shadow banking. They're using other stuff to back it, and it doesn't have to follow all of the rules of a bank, and it's certainly not FDIC insured. That's a shadow bank, and you can see a lot more danger there than in BlackRock, although BlackRock has some risks. That's why private equity is there. It's why interest rates are different than at a bank. It's scarier. It's riskier. 
they have to pay more to get the money to come to them. That's why interest rates are higher because they have to pay more because it's riskier. Risk and interest come together. The more interest you've got above what the bank is paying at a real bank with real FDIC insurance, any place you go that has a higher interest rate than that is going to be taking higher risk, period. That is always the case. If It isn't always the case if you're getting a loan. If you say, I have absolutely perfect credit, it isn't always the case that you have the best interest rate on your loans. I see this regularly where people have absolutely gorgeous credit. Their scores are way up in the 800s, and they have a credit card with a $4,000 balance that they're paying 24% interest on. And I say, what is that about? Oh, I just haven't changed it. I haven't looked around to do it. They're not running their own home booking system like it's a business. So I give advice, and I say, hey, either pay it off, or why don't you transfer it to this 0% over here? Your credit is fine. You shouldn't be paying 24% on it. In the business world, it's a lot rarer to find a good credit institution willing to pay a higher interest rate for its loans. It's just if you're paying, if you're receiving a high interest rate on a loan you gave someone, it's because you're taking a higher risk. You should always know that. Uh, back in the global financial crisis, 2007 through 2009, when people were saying we have this AAA rated mortgage-backed security. It is so guaranteed by us. And even if it fails, we can go and foreclose on these people and it's paying 9%. My brain would have little frizzling electric sounds and smoke would start coming out my ears because that doesn't compute. You don't pay a higher interest rate on a loan at AAA. You get the lowest interest rate available because you got AAA rating. It's like going to get a mortgage with an 840 credit score you're going to get a good interest rate if you shop around at all compared to the, what's available. <laughs> Looking at interest rates today, nobody really calls them good, though they're competitive. You get a competitive rate. How's that? So that's an interesting thing. What is shadow banking? What, what is the risk of shadow banking? Well, if you look at the crypto collapse and you look at the big tech world where the bonuses aren't going out, rather the the layoffs and pink slips are going out. It causes other institutions, real banks, that have deposits for those people to see their deposits start to drop because people aren't putting money in the bank. They're taking money out of the bank for either a short or long period of time. If crypto is an industry, kind of if, and it has a collapse, and people say, well, I need to get other money than I was getting from my crypto, but it's not worth what it used to be. So I want to get it from somewhere else. They'll get it from the bank and that can cause runs on the bank. So shadow banking can affect real banks very quickly. And we'll talk more about this next hour because the intertanglement of all of this is fascinating to me. It's, it's a web of roots that are hard to pull apart. Uh, we, we have a system that dominoes could fall or we could stabilize them all. We'll talk about that in probably too much length next hour because that's what we do. If you'd like to talk to me off the air, uh, we actually give investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth. If you'd like to talk to me off the air, you can reach me locally at 254-947-1111. That's, there's voicemail waiting on the weekends, real live people during the week. 
uh, or toll-free, should you still have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can read newsletters going back a long way. Sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every Friday. I think it's pretty amazing. You can contact us through the contact form there. You can email me directly at jake at tpwc.com, jeff at tpwc.com. And you can find our podcasts anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, Until next hour, this is The Personal Wealth Coach.